Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. You can find it on page 1001 in the Pew Bibles there. Love to have you with the Bible in front of you. We, I preach from God's Word. We look at it often, so it's always good to have it right there in front of you. There is something both awe-inspiring and deeply tragic about the indomitable soul of man. This relentless spirit that enables us to to overcome overwhelming adversities and do what is beyond what is imaginable, what previous generations could never have imagined we are able to accomplish because of this this spirit within us. It's resulted in ingenuity and enterprise and the betterment of, of living conditions for countless numbers of people. But our unconquerable spirits have also resulted in the most horrific disasters, the greatest atrocities, the, the most gut-wrenching, heartbreaking pain and torment, not just for some, but for us all. Let me just consider William Ernest Henley's poem, Invictus. Long before this was a, a, a movie trying to connect South African rugby to post-apartheid uh, political endeavors so that Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon could both have starring roles, Invictus is a poem that has inspired millions of people. It was written by this W.E. Henley who battled with tuberculosis of the bone from the age of 12. And he wrote this poem as a young man, shortly after his leg was amputated. He says in it, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the year finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate or how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. You can see why that's inspiring. I mean, here's a guy who has battled sickness most of his life. He just had his leg cut off. And that horror of the shade, that menace of the years, death continually looms over him. And he's made a decision. He refuses to fear death. I mean, regardless of what happens in the afterlife, he has determined this. I am going to be the master of my fate. I'm going to be the captain of my soul. I'm not going to live in this fear. It's both awe-inspiring and deeply tragic. Because though he resolves to persevere through his afflictions and refuses to live in the fear of death, sadly, he thought he has to give God the middle finger in order to do that. Nevertheless, this poem has inspired both Nelson Mandela to put aside his anger for being unjustly imprisoned for 27 years to lead efforts of racial reconciliation, a remarkable achievement. 
And it was also on the lips of Timothy McVeigh as he received lethal injection for murdering 176 people in the Oklahoma City bombings. The unconquerable soul of man is both awe-inspiring and deeply, deeply tragic. That same unbeatable soul that passionately perseveres over insurmountable obstacles, the unassailable soul that refuses to be dominated by darkness but arises to make a better future for generations to come is the same stubborn spirit that strives for independence and self-sufficiency. The same obstinate, rejecting soul that refuses to be ruled, that insists on making a name for itself, and in the process it paves a way of hopeless, destructive futures for many. And if we're honest, we see both in our lives, don't we? There's this capacity for good, for glory, and also what is evil and reprehensible. It's why the world is the way that it is. It's why we are the way we are. There is something about our humanity. Though it has this capacity both for goodness and for greatness, it fails. It fails to accomplish that which it was intended to achieve. There's this disorder, not just in the world around us, but in our own hearts as well. It plagues us all. We want to live free from any authority over us, but in the process, we subject ourselves to far worse. And despite all of our efforts to make the world better, the future does not look bright. Why? Because humanity is fallen. And as a result, we reject rightful authority and we try to live as our own. And it leads us to hell. W.E. Henley and Timothy McVeigh may have thought that they could be the masters of their fates and the captains of their souls, but I can assure you they do not think that now. That narrow strait, that scroll of punishments, it can't be mocked any longer. Our only hope is that humanity would be restored, not by what we can do, but because of the work of someone else, someone better than we are. Perfect man whose faultless life, whose humble sacrificial death, whose glorious resurrection has crowned him as rightful master over all because he alone can make the world into the paradise that it was meant to be. And that's what we're going to see this morning from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. The superior man is a superior master who guarantees a superior future. The superior man is a superior master who guarantees a superior future. If you just happen to be joining us for the first time, you've kind of caught on a little bit to the theme of Hebrews, right? If you've been with us and you haven't caught that yet, by the time we're done, it should be clear what Hebrews is all about. But as we turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, may we behold the glory of the Son of Man as we read. It says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? 
or the Son of Man, that you care for him. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection under him, or in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At the present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him of whom for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The superior man is a superior master who guarantees a superior future. Now we're just going to break that down into three parts this morning. And so first, the superior man. Now, most people you talk to will agree that Jesus was a great man. He was one of the best, right? Inspiring teacher, maybe even a prophet of God, right? If more people were like Jesus, the world would be a better place, right? Of course, then when you make statements like that, when you set somebody out to be an example or a standard, you obviously, you know, you kind of have to turn yourself and reflect a little bit inward, you know, like, well, you know, I realize I'm not that good, but, but I'm not that bad either, you know, I'm like, I'm not Hitler or I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer, because that's the extremes that we take it to, right, in terms of good and evil. You know, you got the God man on one hand and you've got serial killers on the other. And as long as you're in between, you're, you're okay, But still, if we're honest, we recognize that there are many, many ways that we fall short of what humanity is supposed to be. We've got this notion, this idea in our heads and in our hearts of what what mankind could be, what it should be, and we know we failed it. Even those who are on the extremely liberal end of morality, those that embrace all things, right, as long as it's consensual and does no harm, they recognize that there are categories of of things that exist outside that rubric that they use that, that does cause harm. Lying, for example, causes harm. Looking at pornography causes harm to your family, right? Drunkenness distancing yourself from others, dishonoring someone else, death, all it causes harm. We don't have to look hard to realize that humanity is not what it should be, that I am not what I should be. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only hope we have for humanity is that it is restored by someone else. Restored to this notion of former glory that is written on each and every human heart. And since we know deep, deep down we can't do it, where on earth do we turn? Friends, that's why we're studying the book of Hebrews. So that we can find the answer to that question. So that we can know, we can see the supremacy and the necessity of Christ, who He is and what He has done. And just to bring us up to speed on where we've been so far throughout the book of Hebrews, we saw in chapter 1 that God has spoken long ago and in many times and in many ways to our fathers by the, the prophets, right? He's given us His Word. But in these last days, these days that we live in right now, you and me, He has spoken to us by His Son. 
And through that word, we learn about who the Son is. We learn what He's like. We've seen His nature. He is God. We've seen His work that He created the world. He sustains all there is. He has made purification for sin. We've seen His exalted status as Lord over all. He is superior to angels. He's not just one of the sons of God. He is the unique son of God who sits enthroned over all until all his enemies are defeated. And so in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it takes a pause from that argument, a little parenthetic statement for the sake of application to say, listen, because all that's true, don't neglect this great salvation. What's that salvation? It's Jesus. I want you to get that. Don't neglect it. Don't, don't ignore it. Don't drift away from it. And so now, here we are. The author is picking back up with his argument right where he left off with the son being superior to angels. Okay? But he's doing something different here. He's moving away from Jesus' divinity, right? His godness. He's moving away from his exalted status as Lord over all to now focusing in on his humanity, okay? Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. And so, God subjected the world to come to the Son, not to angels. God did that. How do we know that, that the Son is superior to angels? Well, God subjected the world to Him, not to angels. And you might wonder why. I mean, after all, let's face it, what's so glorious about this Jesus, right? I mean, He was a guy. He was a dude, right? I mean, sure, He did all of these miracles that we read about in the Gospels, but I mean, the guy didn't radiate light, Right? I mean, we read the, the account of his birth where the host of heaven is just like filling up the sky and it's like daylight. Shepherds are freaking out as they're singing glory to God in the highest. I mean, Jesus didn't fly. But even more so, Jesus died. Angels, angels didn't, don't die. But Jesus died. And if the wages of sin is death and Jesus died... How do we know for sure that he's superior to angels, let alone to us? How do we know for sure that God has subjected the world to come to him? Guys, this is a huge issue. This always has been a huge issue. Ever since Jesus showed up on the scene, it's a huge issue for us all to consider. How do we know? How do we know what we know? I mean, we know Jesus lived. We know Jesus died. But what about all that other stuff? Go back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. How do we know? God speaks. He tells us. And the author of Hebrews here, being a good biblical theologian that he is, I think I'm going to start calling him BT for biblical theologian. He's teaching us good biblical theology here, Right? Being a good biblical theologian that he is, he takes us back to the Word to show us how all of God's promises and all of God's purposes are fulfilled in the Son. Right? And this time, he takes us to Psalm 8. Now, when he says right there, it has been testified somewhere, it's not that he doesn't know, okay? It's not this like, oh, you know, I think the Bible says a penny saved is a penny earned, but I'm not real sure 
Uh, you know, I can't really find it in my Bible. Like, I don't really know. That's not, that's not it at all. It's like me saying to you, it's testified somewhere, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. All right? You know what I'm talking about, and I know what I'm talking about, right? I, I don't have to tell you where it is. I don't need to tell you what page you can find it on. Okay? Just like, so, so he could be a little bit snarky here. Because everybody knows. He knows, they know, it's obvious. Just like this. It's testified somewhere. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Guys, you don't even have to be a Christian, let alone me hold up a sign for most of you to know that that's John 3.16. Right? It's obvious to everybody. Now, I say that because it frustrates me when you run into liberal theologians out there, liberal biblical scholars that say, look, you know, author of Hebrews, this can't be inspired because he doesn't know where it is. Of course he knows where it is, right? I mean, you know where it is, and you're, you live 2,000 years later. You just looked at your cross-reference in your Bible. You figured it out, but this guy knows. But you miss this. He says, it has been testified somewhere. Who testified? Who testified somewhere? God did. He doesn't have to give you a reference. In fact, he's already quoted at least seven passages, never once made a reference. Never said, turn in your Bible to page 1001. Right? I'm off that soapbox now. But he refers to this psalm intentionally to point to Christ's humanity. You see, he grabs hold of that Son of Man title that Jesus called himself the Son of Man, right? You know, he, he grabs hold of the fact that he was made for a little while lower than angels and yet was crowned with glory and honor and all things were put in subjection under his feet. Okay, that's what he's grabbing hold of. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to keep your eyes right here on verses 6 and 7. And I'm just going to read all of Psalm 8 for you. It's a short psalm, not very long, okay? But I want you to see the similarities between them. So keep your eyes fixed here, right? Psalm 8 reads, To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of David, that is, King David of Israel. And David sings, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now here's where you zero in to see the similarities. It says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and whatever path passes along the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so here is King David, Right? The best king, God's chosen king for his people. And he's marveling as he meditates on the truths that are found in Genesis chapter 1. God's word, God has spoken. 
This is God's word. He's meditating on it, finds it glorious. He, he can't help but wonder, like, how is it, you know, that he's thinking about how God made man in his image to reflect his nature, his character, his purposes and promises, how God gave man dominion over all that he has made. I mean, when you think about it, it's crazy, right? I mean, what's so significant about man? When you think of all that God has made, God spoke and galaxies were formed. That's big, right? Real big. Vast, far bigger than you or me. You take a plane ride, you get like a thousand feet in the air, you suddenly feel really tiny. Imagine if you zoomed all the way out. And yet God is mindful of you. I mean, there are creatures that God has made that are just as beautiful, creatures that are stronger than we are. I mean, God could have made us with the intelligence of a banana. Right? I mean, I'm glad he didn't. My, my brain's mushy enough sometimes enough as it is, right? I, I don't need to have a banana brain. But he didn't. And of all of the creatures that God made, all of the living beings, none was so glorious, so beautiful, so powerful. And though I, have, I haven't struck up a conversation with one, I, I'm assuming, and I'm probably right in assuming this, probably none so as intelligent as angels. Better than us. And yet, God gave humanity dominion over all that he's made. amazing and so in that right because God chose in his wisdom to give dominion to humanity and not to angels man though made a little lower than the angels is still superior to angels and so even in Jesus humanity he's superior to angels because God's wise choice to give dominion to man and in fact we are told in In 1 Corinthians 6, that we will one day judge the angels. And so David and B.T., the author of Hebrews here, are marveling that God would choose to exalt man over angels by giving him dominion. All right? So because of this God-given dominion, though we are not the most glorious thing in all of creation, we're just little, little tiny specks compared to what God has created with his fingers, all the moon and stars that God has set in place, even man is still superior to angels. And that is knowing that in in, in light of the fact that we are fallen, that we've sinned against God, that we've all rejected him and ignored him and rebelled against him. And nevertheless, this role, though marred by human sin, still remains. Even after our sin, God still subjected all things to man. Even after our sin, God is still mindful of us. Even after our sin, God still cares for us. Even after all of our sin and all that we have done, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you should care for him? But that ability to be God's people in God's place, under his rule and blessing, that ability to image God, that ability to rule as vice regents over all that God has made has been corrupted. There's now a chasm 
between us and God because of our sin. And our sin has made it impossible for us to live as mankind was meant to. This rebellion and rejection and ignorance of God is not part of what it means to be man. I want to say that again. This rebellion and rejection and ignorance of God is not part of what it means to be a man. That's what it means to be fallen man. But the original man walked with God and ruled over his creation well. Left to ourselves, we cannot do that. No matter how remarkable our efforts may be. And this, my friends, is why it was necessary for the Son of God to become man. To restore humanity to its former glory. This is why the Son was made for a little while lower than the angels. Not because He was ever less than an angel. Or, or just was God and only seemed to be man. No, He's fully God and He's fully man. He was, in, as we are, in all respects and yet without sin. And he came as fully man in order to do what we failed to do so that he might restore mankind to its original glory. And the rest of the book of Hebrews is going to unpack that further, right? He partook of the same things that we did. He was tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. He is the merciful and faithful high priest who can identify with us in every single way. And since the blood of bulls or goats or any other flesh cannot redeem us, he is the perfect, once for all, one for one, perfect man for mankind, sacrifice to cover all of our sin. And as it says here in verse 9, not only was he for a little while made lower than the angels, just like us, but the Son took on flesh so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Marvel at this. Look at this. God cannot die. Angels, according to Luke chapter 20, verse 36, cannot die. All right? No other flesh can die for the sin of man. And so the Son took on flesh and lived a perfect life. He alone was the perfect man. You want to know what humanity is supposed to be like? It's Jesus. He lived in obedience to God in all things, and he gave up that life in order to taste death for everyone so that through faith in his name, we might be made new. We might be a restored humanity, a glorified humanity, a redeemed humanity, a new humanity in Christ that is now able to live as we were made to live. And in the end, when Christ returns, we will be a perfect humanity. You see, God's word 
says that there's two types of people. There's two types of mankind. There are those who are in Adam, and there are those who are in Christ. Those who are fallen because of their identification with our first parent, Adam, and his sin, right? That's Romans chapter 5. That's what we're all born into. Or there is this new humanity of new men and women who have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, the perfect man, the superior man, because he alone humbled himself to live a perfect life and died a sacrificial death for the sins of many. Guys, Adam tasted death and it led to death for everyone. Jesus tasted death and it led to life eternal for all who would call on him. Those are your options. So when you see commands in Scripture that says, you know, look at Jesus, be like Jesus, do, do this, do that, right? Don't do this, don't do that. It's not because He's trying to ruin all your fun, but because God is calling you back to that restored humanity to be the man, to be the woman that you were made and redeemed to be. What kind of man are you going to be? Are you going to remain in your sin, in your fallen edemic state, or will you turn from it to faith in the superior man, Jesus Christ? So Jesus is the superior man who second is a superior master. Now here, here's the rub, right? This is why we don't want to come to Jesus, right? If we come to Jesus, he's got to be our master. He's got to be our Lord, and I don't want that. Now, I don't mind him being Savior and getting all the goodies that come alongside of that, right? Forgiveness of sin, eternal life in paradise, even if God happens to be there, you know? Like, I I like that whole get-out-of-hell-free card thing that comes with Jesus, but I want to live the life that I want to live. I want to be who I want to be. I want to be the Lord. I want to be the master of my fate and the captain of my soul, not Jesus. And because we are so ignorant of God, and because we think so highly of ourselves, we actually deceive ourselves into thinking that that is even possible. Like God is not sovereign and we, or, or that we can live independent from him. And we saw in Hebrews chapter 1 that God both made us and sustains our existence. The very breath that you use to curse God is the very breath that he gives to you. You can't do it, right? Our believing that we can live without God or that we can run through life uh, free from him to conquer anything that we want is like a hamster running itself to death on a wheel trying to catch a pellet that is outside of the cage. Can't be done. Do you think that you live in freedom? Do you actually think that you live independent from God? Hebrews 1 says that your existence is being sustained by the word of his power. And so no. Do you think that you're not subject to something else, that that you have no master, that something is not lording over you right now? Hebrews chapter 2 is going to identify 
three masters over each and every human soul. The first one we've already talked about is sin. Apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. That's Romans chapter 6, right? We can't not sin. It's impossible. We can't go through the day. We can't go through the hour without failing to be human as human was meant to be. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we're proud, we hurt others, we covet what other people have. I mean, you name it, we do it. We can't help it because that's part of our sinful nature. We can't not sin because we are slaves to sin. Sin has mastery over us and we will face a just retribution for it. And though... Excuse me. Though we were meant to rule according to Genesis 1 and Psalm 8, our sin has made that impossible. All right, so we've got this problem. We know that we're meant to rule. We want to rule. We try to rule. But we are sinful rulers who cannot obey the rules. And so our rule is corrupt and makes everything worse. Here's an example of just how bad it is. I tried to do a Google search this week on quotes about how man was meant to rule, right? I think you'd find something. You know what popped up? About a million quotes about how man is meant to break the rules, right? How rules are meant to be broken. I mean, that, that's just an example of our, how sin mass, is master over us. But there's a second master over us all, and that is death. The wages of our sin, right? No matter who you are, no matter how rich, no matter how poor, no matter how young, no matter how old, whether you're religious or not, whether you're moral or immoral, right? No matter what your background is or what your upbringing, what culture you're from or what group you run with, every single person is going to die. You are going to die. Just quoting, what about Bob? It always comes up. Um, (laughs) There is a global, historical, 100% mortality rate. It's guaranteed, right? You can spend all of your wealth trying to prolong your days and you won't be very successful. You can give your life in service to medicine to develop cures or to provide health care, but you cannot cure death. It is pandemic and it will be the end of existence for every single person that ever lived. And that's what's so ironic about Henley's statement. No, you are not the master of your fate because you cannot control death. You can shake your fist at it. You can try to evade it for a period of time. You can hurry it along by taking your own life, but you cannot control death. You cannot defeat it. You are mastered by it. So there's sin, there's death, but if you look down at verses 14 and 15, you will see a third, the devil. It says, since therefore 
The children share in flesh and blood. He himself, that is the son, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so the devil has the power of death. Death is the consequence from the power of sin that rules over us. Therefore, the devil too has mastery over us by keeping us in this lifelong slavery in the fear of death. And don't think about that like in terms of like exorcist kind of creepy, weird sort of horror stuff. What does that look like that, that he has power over us? Well, it, I, I don't want to use up all my babies. I want to save it for later. But here's ultimately what happens. The devil tempts us to sin. And once we sin, he turns around and he condemns us in our sin. He says, hi, you're mine. I've got you because you sinned. And here's the thing. You know it. You know you've sinned, right? And you know that you deserve death and the judgment uh, that, that comes with that. And you cannot save yourself. And so what do you do? Right? You try to run and hide. You try to evade it. You try to ignore it. You try to pretend like it doesn't exist. Or you get angry and defiant and say, I'm going to choose to believe that this is not true. But in the end, you cannot change the fact. Just like W.E. Henley or Timothy McVeigh, you can reject it all you want, but you cannot deny two things. All have sinned and all die. It's a given reality. Right? Spend time with people? Do you? They ever sinned against you? You ever sinned against them? Check number one. Axiom number one is true. Do all people die? Yes, they do. Axiom number two. And the one who holds the power over sin and death also holds power over you as well. And so you are mastered by the devil unless... He is defeated. You might want not want to believe, or you might want to believe, I should say, that you are the master of your fate and the captain of your soul, but you are not. And the temporary freedom to sin at best gives you momentary pleasure, but it will condemn you in chains forever. Friends, that is not freedom. That is slavery. This world, this life is not all there is. Verse 5 tells us as much. There is a world to come. And if we neglect Christ, if we neglect this great salvation, we will not escape a just retribution. So we don't have the option to be masters of our fate. Just like with humanity, which one is better, right? Fallen humanity or restored humanity in Christ, we have to decide which is a better master. Is sin, death, and the devil a better master? Or is Christ a better master? This passage could not be clear that God has subjected all things to the Son. Verse 5. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, but to the Son. Verse 8, putting everything in subjection under His feet. And just to be clear, now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing, that is nothing, outside of His control. And so He is creator, He is sustainer, He is owner, and He's ruler of all. Everything. What's left out? Nothing. Because everything means everything. And that leaves out nothing.
But why? I mean, why, why did God put all things in subjection under his feet? Why would he do that? Why, if, if the Son is God, would he even say that? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, if he's God, why is he talking about putting things in subjection under his feet? Didn't he already have everything under his feet? Well, I want to begin to answer that question with a question. Why did God subject all things to mankind in the first place? Got a good answer for that one? Because God chose to, right? Because God is good? Because He's generous? Because He's kind? Because He's near to us? Because His sovereignty is not threatened? If He should make His creation vice regents over what He has made? Because He's loving? Because he is our father. Simply put, because God chose to. And God is far wiser. His plans are far greater than anything that you or I could imagine. But why then did God put all things in subjection under the Son's feet? Because humanity failed to be the faithful masters over all that God had made. But Jesus was and is the perfect master. His life and his teaching reveal what human dominion is supposed to look like. He obeyed his father perfectly. And as he did, he fulfilled his role as king. He did so in wisdom. He did so in compassion. He did so in humility. He did so in service. And he did so perfectly, without any spot or blemish or stain of sin. And because he fulfilled that role of human dominion perfectly, God subjected all things to him, right? If you compete according to the rules and you win in the end, you get the prize, right? That's what's happening here. He is the king over all, the world and the world that is to come. The Father crowned him with glory and with honor because of his perfect obedience in fulfilling what in, it means to be man and what it means to be master, his faithfulness and his humility earned him the right to be king. And God wants us to know that. And why, God, why, why didn't God do that with angels? Well, look down at verse 9. God crowned him with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Angels have nor no corporal bodies, therefore angels cannot die. But the Son of God, whose glory far, far exceeds all that He has made, including angels, took on flesh so that He could suffer death for humanity. 
let me ask you, which is the better master? The entanglements of sin? The power of Satan? The guarantee of eternal death and condemnation? Or the Son of God who is perfectly obedient and perfectly good and perfectly patient and perfectly humble and perfectly loving who suffered for sins so that you don't have to who tasted death so that you can escape its clutches who defeated the devil to deliver you from eternal slavery which is better? It's one of the reasons why we often fear of coming to Christ is because we are afraid to take God at His word. We are afraid that when all is said and done, He will treat us as our sins really do deserve or that His rule might be like ours, tyrannical, foolish, wicked. Friends, look at who He is. Look at Him. Look at what he's done. He has suffered death so that you do not have to live in the fear of condemnation. And though he is king over all, he is good. He will never, ever do you wrong. He will never leave you or forsake you. Yes, as creator, he owns you, but he also bought you back with his own blood. He's not going to give that up. He's not going to say, forget it, you're not worth it. I'm done with you. Because he's redeemed you. He's a good king. And he wouldn't do that for a lie. So we can trust that this is true. That this word is true. And that Jesus is a superior master. And so he is a superior man and a superior master. Third, who guarantees a superior future. Friends, this world is not all there is. Verse 5 tells us so. There is a world that is to come. And our choice between two humanities and two masters will result in two very different futures, two very different worlds, two very different kingdoms. We can either, as it says in Colossians chapter 1, remain in this domain of darkness right, that we're all a part of, that you and I are born into, or by the grace of God, He might qualify us by the blood of Christ and deliver us from the kingdom of this world to transfer us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And we've already been given a warning in verses 1 through 4 of the future that awaits us if we neglect this great salvation. We will not escape a just retribution. It won't happen. You're not going to just go unnoticed, just slip by, just kind of fade off into oblivion. And friends, it doesn't end with death. We're going to see from Hebrews chapter 6 that foundational to the Christian faith is the reality of eternal judgment. That we don't have the liberty to curse God and it only end in death. No, those who go on sinning deliberately after the knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of the truth that you have received right here and right now because of what I'm telling you, okay, 
You're, you're, you're not innocent anymore. I've just corrupted you. Sorry. But because you've heard this, if you deliberately go on sinning after the knowledge of truth, like those, this that you've just received, according to chapter 10, you will experience a fury of fire that will be eternally consumed because you are his adversary. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And that's the future that we make for ourselves. That's the future. No matter how many notches you put in your belt of good deeds. But because he is this superior man who is a superior master, we have the guarantee of a superior future. Friends, because of Christ, our humanity can be redeemed. We can actually be the men and women that we were made to be. Because of Christ, God is mindful of us. He hasn't, nor will He ever, abandon us. Because of Christ, God cares for us. He will never quit. He will never disappoint. He will never neglect. He will never abandon. And we know this because God has shown His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And because of Christ... Not only will we bow to his glory and honor, but in him, we too will be crowned with glory and honor. The redemption of humanity is the redemption of dominion. That we will get to be co-heirs with Christ. He partook of our humanity, and so we get to partake of His eternal glory forever. Co-heirs with Christ in His kingdom for all eternity. Friends, you cannot carve out a better future for yourself than that. You can't. So don't drift away from it. Don't neglect such a great salvation. But if you're still wondering, okay, all right, fine. If that's where we're headed, then why don't we see more glimpses of it today? Why, why don't, I mean, if Jesus is king, and he's ruling over all, he's been crowned with glory and honor, why is the world the way that it is? Why don't we see at least a little bit more of this rule and this reign? Why, why is my life the way that it is? How do we know that we're not buying into a lie and wasting the short life that we have here on this world? Well, the answer is found right there in verse 8. At this present time, we do not see everything in subjection to Him. But we see Him. I was struck by that. I never never really saw that before in Hebrews chapter 2. This present time, and we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. We see him who is crowned with glory and honor. We see him who has suffered death. We see him who by the grace of God has tasted death for everyone. We see him. Friends, this is ultimately what Christians are. Who Christians are? Christians are those who see Jesus, 
who listen like we saw last time in, in, in verses 1 through 4. They listen to Jesus and they see Jesus. That's what, that's what we are. Well, what do you mean? I mean, I've never seen Jesus. I mean, I have little pictures up, up on walls or in my children's Bible, but I haven't seen Jesus. What do you mean? Here's what I mean. When we come to the Word of God, we don't read it like the words of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God. And as we do that, our eyes are opened. Though before we could not see, because our eyes were veiled to the glory of Christ, God's light shines through His Word into our eyes and into our hearts so that we can now behold Jesus. All right, 2 Corinthians 4 describes it this way. And even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, the devil, right, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see him. God shines the gospel into our hearts and we see him, we believe, we understand, we love him, we cherish these truths, we respond by following him. Not perfectly, but sincerely and truly and longingly. And as we do that, we become more like him because that's what we want to live for, because that's what we love most. We want to see Jesus, we want to follow Jesus. An unbeliever can look and see the words of scripture, they can hear the message of the gospel, but they are unchanged. Because Christ is not seen as glorious. A Christian is someone who God shines the light of the gospel into their hearts and they love him for it and they want to follow him because he is king and his kingdom is more glorious than anything else. And we get glimpses of that. Though we don't see that kingdom fully, right? Because his kingdom is not of this world. It is present because the king is here. That kingdom is dawned with the first coming of Christ in the flesh. But that kingdom still won't be fully realized until he comes again in glory. But in the meantime, we wait for it with patience. We pursue it with all earnestness. We set our hope and we build our lives around that superior future because we see Jesus. As this is why we gather here. I hope that's why you're here today. To see Jesus. It's why we do things like gathering community groups or life transformation groups because we want to help one another to see Jesus. And isn't that really what biblical counsel is all about, right? See Jesus rightly, see yourself rightly. There you go. Repent and believe. That's it, right? You don't need advanced degrees or particular skills to do that. You help others to see Jesus. That's what we do. That's why we're here. That's why I'm preaching to you because I want you to see Jesus, So the question is, do you see him? Do you see that he is the only hope for humanity? Do you see that he 
is a good and loving and faithful master. Do you see the glory that awaits us when he comes again? And are you willing to let go of your petty temporary kingdoms here for that superior one that is not of this world? Do you see him? I pray that you do. Because the superior man is a superior master who guarantees us all a superior future. Let's pray. Father, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? When we think about the glory that is yours in creating the heavens, the moon, and the stars that you've set in place, it's overwhelming that you would consider us. And knowing that we've sinned against you, that we've turned away from you, that we've neglected to give you the honor and glory that is due your name. It is only by Christ that we can come. It's only by Christ that we can have hope. God, we thank you for the mercy and grace that you have shown us in him. And we ask that you would help us to see Jesus we would see him more clearly, that we would love him with all of our hearts. As we partake in the Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death until he comes again. May we even be reminded here, we're seeing Jesus. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that will receive for the glory of his name.